Amen. Amen. And Lord, we do lift your name high. You are Lord over all the earth. And Lord, we wouldn't want it any other way. Lord, we thank you for your, your goodness and your love towards us. Lord, we are, we are amazed by you. And Lord, I am blessed by uh, the opportunity to just get together on a night like tonight and open your word. Lord, taking time out of everybody's busy schedule. There's so many things going on and things to do and preparing some going to go out of town, others to have people come into town. And Lord, I'm just blessed that uh, people want to come out and hear your word. And so Lord, I pray that you, you bless us tonight as we spend some time there studying again the life of the father of faith, Abraham. And Lord, speak to us. There's so many lessons that we can learn from these events that took place so many years ago, if we're willing to hear from you. So Lord, I pray that we, we all have that tonight, that desire to hear from you, hearts open to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you here tonight. Take out your Bibles, if you would, and open them up with me to Genesis chapter 16. Only one more shopping day till the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it really does amaze me that so many people, I've heard my daughter was telling me about, they were talking about it in school the other day, about all of these people who have sold everything and all this kind of stuff and you know, nobody's going to, you know, can you imagine the retailers on Saturday when everybody's wrong and nobody bought Christmas presents, so they got to go run out and take advantage of it now. And so many people believing all of this stuff, and it just, it amazes me how they will believe that, fall totally for that, yet deny the very word of God that's been proven infallible for all these thousands of years. So let's focus on that and no more on the Mayans. Genesis chapter 16, if you'll remember last time when we were going through Genesis 15, we talked about the covenant that God reiterated to Abraham, but this time again, he, he, he had Abraham, or Abram, hasn't changed his name yet, Abram, divide the carcasses, and then God went through those himself as Abram watched, and he promised him again that he would have a son and it would come from him. It would come from his seed. It would come through him. Because remember, Abram was really wondering, Lord, you've made all these promises, but I don't have any children. I, how am I going to pass this on? It's going go to go to my slave. And God said, no, it's not going to go to him. It's going to go through you. You will have a son. You will have descendants come directly from you. And we saw that in chapter 15. And I have to imagine that the first thing Abram did when he got back was find Sarai, his wife, and tell her all about it. And they were celebrated and all excited about all of this news and everything. Again, God reiterated the promise and he showed me it this way and, and just blown away by it. But I imagine the question was asked. Sarai said, okay, so when? And Abram was like, God, he didn't say. He didn't say. He, he didn't tell us when. And we don't have a time frame that took place from the events that we talked about last week to where we pick up in chapter 16 this week. We don't know the time gap. I'm imagining it's anywhere from a, a few months to a few years because as we see in verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And right away, we have a problem on our hands because Abram's 85, Sarai's 75. And again, God's made this promise. And days continue to go by, and days turn into weeks, and weeks into months. And it's been several years since the promise was initially made to Abram, and still nothing's happening. And we see here the, the definite need for patience in this. And for most people, myself first of the line, patience isn't our long suit. Especially when there's difficult circumstances involved, and in this case like this, seemingly impossible circumstances involved but the author of hebrews we'll get there in a few weeks in chapter six it says so that you will not be sluggish or lazy but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises 
the author of Hebrews tells us that many of God's promises require faith and patience. Faith and patience. And he says, he, he contrasts those who have faith and patience with those who are lazy. And to me, when I read that and put those two together, it tells me something very significant that faith and patience requires work. There's, there's work involved to fight the temptations that come along to pull up anchor, to move along, to give up, to give in, to lose hope. It takes work. It takes a lot of work on our knees in prayer. We need to understand that if there's a time lapse between a promise and the receipt of that promise, it's not because God is procrastinating. It's not because he's preoccupied. Most of the time is, is because he is developing something. He is preparing us. He's preparing our hearts. He's preparing ourselves to be the recipients of that. We're not ready to receive it yet. And sometimes we think, oh God, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm so ready for that. And then when it comes, we realize, man, I'm so glad it happened now and not then because I wouldn't have known how to handle it then. God's timing is perfect. We always need to, we know that. We could probably all just say it, just come right off our tongue, but it we always need to remember that. God's timing is perfect. He has a plan. His plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. And in this particular situation, we need to understand that it wasn't just any child that was going to be born. This is going to be the child of promise that the, the entire nation of Israel would come through this child. So why did God take so long? Well, Again, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 12, gives us a little indication. It tells us because they waited so long because Abraham and Sarai were as good as dead. <laughs> Not to put it too bluntly. They were as good as dead. They couldn't have children anymore. They were past the age of childbearing so that God gets all the glory. It's not easy to wait. It's not easy to have patience. It takes work, but it's worth it. Romans 10, verse 11, Paul actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, when he said this, he says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, is the New American Standard translation. But literally, that word means put to shame. If you trust in the Lord and you believe in him and you wait on him and you're patient, you will not be put to shame. You won't be sorry for what comes. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, you probably know it well. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. We know those verses, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And we know, though, through trial and error, and all of the times we try, there's an error at the end of it, that if we get into our own timing, and we start doing things on our schedule, and get off of God's plan, there is disappointment. There is shame. And there's a whole lot of crooked paths along the way. Well, it goes on. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now maybe you guys have seen those like suspense movies where the, the plot is really building and you know just enough of what is going to happen that when you see the person, that the star of the movie, going to go into, you know, you're, you're going to go into the house where the bad guys just went and you're like, no, don't go, don't go. You're yelling at the TV like they can hear you and if they, they did listen to you, the movie would be really bad anyway. So it's got to happen the way it does. I find myself, we've all read this, we all know what's going to happen, but i got to say, we're all saying, no, 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 don't listen to her, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Oh, man. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. She said, I can't have kids. God's preventing me from having children. Here, here's my servant. Take her. Take her as your wife. Have relations with her. And then when the baby is born, it, I'll take that baby since she's, my, since she's my servant. And that was a common practice in the time. And you got to think, Sarah, what are you thinking? What, what could possibly be going through your mind? But before we get too hard on her, remember last time when we were going through the promises. God promised that the seed would come through Abram, but he never made that promise to her. 
So she starts reasoning in her own mind, well, it must be. God must have a different plan. It can't include me. He's got to be going a different direction. Again, thinking in her own mind. Logically, she was his wife, though. And God, God doesn't go against his own nature. And so she, but she starts second-guessing God. And Warren Wiersbe has a great quote. It says, faith is living without scheming. So often, again, in our faith, we can start saying, okay, i got to manipulate some things. i gotta, I got to turn some screws here in order to get where God is obviously trying to go. But notice, however, some things that we can point out in Sarai. And again, if these are areas in our own lives, I can put myself sometimes in these situations. Notice, though, her motive wasn't a pure one. She says, I will obtain children through her. The focus wasn't on God's promise. The focus wasn't on God's plan for this nation. The focus was on her. I will obtain children through her. Understand that in that, that culture at that time, a woman who could not have children was looked on very poorly. She was, she was, they would talk about her behind her back. She was tired of the scorn. She was tired of hearing all of this, especially as word of this promise keeps going around, the, the many hundreds of people that would interact with them. She had this stigma, and so she was focused on her own glory. But if you'll remember, we just talked about it. One of the reasons God is taking so long is because it's for his glory and his glory alone. But that motive turned into bitterness. Look, it says that she said, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She was even becoming disappointed in God. She was getting angry with God. He's done this. It's God's fault that I'm this way. And our enemy loves to play on those emotions. Satan loves to whisper in our ears, God's forgotten about you. God's left you out. God's holding out on you. Remember, same types of things that he was using with Eve back in the Garden of Eden. The same tricks, the same things that are going through there. Well, it goes on, verse 3. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, again, I mentioned this is perfectly acceptable at the time. This is common practice. But just because it's common practice out in the world does not mean it's God's design does not mean that God approves of it. Remember what God's plan for marriage was. One man, one woman. The two shall become one flesh. There is no room for a third party in that. Yet, she's saying, take on another wife. Take my, my servant Hagar as another wife for you. Now, there's many examples, and we're going to see it as we go through Genesis. There's many examples of polygamous marriages in the Old Testament. But just because it's recorded, again, does not mean God's endorsing it. By the way, we, when we go through these, you'll see that there's never a single example of a happy one. There's a lot of contention, a lot of fighting, a lot of bitterness that is involved in those relationships. God doesn't even honor this marriage, as we'll see you just look ahead real quickly to verse 8. We'll get there in a second. But when the Lord appears to her, he, says, he calls her Sarai's maid. He does not call her Abram's wife. He doesn't even acknowledge it as a marriage. Now, as we noticed, remember when we were back in chapter 12, when Abram took his family and they fled to Egypt because of the famine, and it appeared that though things were coming along pretty good and things were going their way, and we talked about the fact that it, just because things seem to be going in the right direction does not mean, again, that God is blessing it, that God is endorsing it, that God's behind it. But we see here, Hagar conceived. And Sarai had to be thinking at the time, man, my plan's working. Everything's working according to my plan. She's, she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. And I will claim that baby. And everything seems to be moving along. Abram's probably thinking, hey, her plan worked. Everything's going along. But this isn't God's plan. George MacDonald said this again, a quote I really liked. In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. And that's what's happening here. There's success in the plan, but we're going to see the misery that comes along behind it. The verse continues, 
And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. So here, Hagar becomes pregnant, and now she starts looking with disdain on Sarai, looking down on her, maybe very condescendingly. I'm the one that's pregnant. I'm the chosen one. I, you know, we don't know the exchange that's going on, but it wasn't a good one. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Stuff begins to unravel really quickly. The plan starts going south in a hurry. Again, Hagar starts be treating her harshly. Sarai goes to Abram, says, look what's going on. He says, you take care of it. You deal with it. She treats Hagar harshly, and she takes off. Things begin to unravel quickly. They should have identified the problem immediately before it got to this point. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn when disputes, problems break out in our family relationships, because they do. They do. Hopefully not over circumstances like this. But problems do come up. Tensions do get strained in relationships. When when conversations start going south and you start recognizing that there's a problem, deal with it immediately. Don't wait until it blows up like this. Guys, if you ask your wife how she's doing and she says, fine. She's not fine. (laughs) If you say, what's wrong? She says, nothing. That's a problem. There's something wrong. Identify it immediately. Get to the heart of the problem. And I heard some great advice that when arguing as couples, and I think this goes with any relationship, especially within a, a family relationship, but... Ultimately, any discussion that's between Christians, if there's any type of conflict, make sure that before you continue in the conversation, you are both in the Spirit. Because if one of you is in the flesh, the conversation isn't going to go where it needs to go. And that's where, unfortunately, Abram dropped the ball big time here. He should have called a big family meeting. They should have built an altar like it was his custom to do. They should have gotten on their knees before the Lord and prayed, Lord, reveal to us what we need to do. Show us in our hearts what needs to happen. There needs to be humility. There needs to be confession. There needs to be working together to get through the situation. Go back to the beginning where the problem started. Let's identify it from here and work through it. James chapter 3, the end of it, talks about what causes dissension, even amongst believers. The same thing is true as it is out in the world. It always comes back to envy and strife and you hurt my feelings and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, back and forth. But James chapter 4, as he continues through that, he tells us in verse 8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Get the family together, pray, go before the Lord, humble yourself, and he will exalt you. He will work through those situations. He will deal with it. Unfortunately, none of that happened. We see three examples of what not to do. Sarai blamed Abram. It was her idea to begin with, but she blames him. And then she mistreats Hagar. Abram, first of all, he agreed with this silly plan. And he he totally abdicated his responsibility as the spiritual leader in the home and said, Sarah, you deal with it. You just take care of it. He He didn't want anything to do with it. And as the leader of the home, you can't do that. But he did. And then we see Hagar, she just ran away from the problem. She just took off and left. Now as we see... Running away from a problem is at best, at best, a temporary solution. If you've ever done it, you know what I'm talking about. Again, you might feel like, okay, I got past that. 
but you never get away from it. You need to deal with the issue. So we see this family mess. Hagar takes off. Verse 7, it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, I have, been, I have, have I even remained alive here after seeing him. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Here we see Hagar running away. She's in the desert, out in the wilderness somewhere, and it says the angel of the Lord appeared to her. Now this is the first time this, this phrase is used, angel of the Lord, in the Bible. And this is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of God himself in Jesus. How do we know that? Well, there's a couple of evidence of it. First of all, in verse 10, he promises what only God could do. It says, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Only God could do that. In verse 13, Hagar calls him God. And as we've seen and talked about it in Scripture, in any time angels are at all given any worship, they refuse it. He does not refuse it. He doesn't correct her. And notice she calls him, for you are a God who sees the name Elroy for God, the God who sees. And I have to imagine, again, I just put myself in the situation. Here she is standing, and she recognizes him as God. And deal, talking, all of a sudden, she's like, this isn't like any of the gods back in Egypt. They never, they never, they never saw my plight. They never cared about me personally. And in this, I think this is, this is a really one of those can't-miss little nuggets buried in the story that if we read past it too quickly, we miss. This is an incredible demonstration of God's love and grace. Here we have the servant girl, the slave girl, who was involved in what shouldn't have happened, running away, obviously crying, full of despair, doesn't even understand who God is at this point, crying out, and God meets her personally. Stepped out of heaven. Clothed as, as it says, the angel of the Lord comes to her and meets her right where she is. And to me, this is an incredible, beautiful picture of our God. If you've ever been in a situation or you know someone who is, bring them to this. Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel left alone? Do you feel mistreated? Do you feel unloved? Do you feel outside of God's plan? You're not. You're not. Just cry out to him. He hears your cries. He feels your pain. And he's right there. He personally cares for you. I love the personalness of this. He met her personally. Now, he comforted her, obviously, in his words. But notice, he told her to return to Sarai. He didn't say, all right, I'm going to bless you. Keep on going. I'll watch out for you. He said, no, you got to go back and face your problem head on. You have to go back and deal with your problem. But now when she goes back, she's in the spirit. Now when she goes back, she knows that God is with her. He told her to submit and be obedient. That took a lot of faith to go back and do this but she had the assurance that God was with her. And the same is with you. If you're running away from a problem, if you've turned your back and tried to outrun this thing, stop. Stop. Realize that Elroy, the God who sees, sees your problem. And he understands your problem far better than you do. Go back to the problem. 
pray for wisdom and guidance and direction. He'll give it to you. Submit to him and trust him. He'll work it out for your good and his glory. That's a promise. Now, the promised son that she has given here, she's, she, the, the son that's in her womb, she said, well, the, God said, that you will have many descendants. I will give you, greatly multiply your descendants through him. The son is to be named Ishmael. That means God hears. God hears. Now, we know that Ishmael went on to be the father of the Arab nations. And this is the beginning right here when she goes back. Now, this is the beginning of the Arab-Israeli conflict that still goes on today. And God prophesies that. He says he's going to be against everyone and everyone's going to be against him. But she will bless Hagar and bless him. He will be a great nation. Now, it's not specifically stated, but I have to imagine when she got back, it was a humbling experience for all of them. I have to imagine God was working on all of their hearts through all of this. Sarai had to submit once again to her husband's authority and submit to God and treat Hagar fairly. Abram had to realize that he had totally dropped the ball on the whole thing, submit to God and lead the family. A victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Realize that God allows us to start back over every time. We confess, we go back to him, we bring our family together, whatever the situation is, and he's a God of new beginnings. There's new mercy every day. We never run out. Praise God. Well, verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Chapter 17. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will, give you the possess- I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. If you're a note taker or a circler of things, go through this later on and circle all the times in this chapter. It says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Seven times in just the short little section that we went through here. Thirteen years has lapsed. Again, more patience required. 13 years from the time of the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17. God appears now again to Abram. He says, I am God Almighty. First time that the name for God used here, El Shaddai. First time that it's used. And it means God Almighty, all-powerful, all-sufficient. The one that can do anything. The one that can meet any need. The name, he changed Abram's name to Abraham, so I don't have to worry about messing that up anymore. Means a father of a multitude. Now again, he's laying out this covenant, and he's not stating a new covenant. This again is a reaffirmation of the covenant that we talked about last time. And again, the fact that he uses I will, I will, I will, I will, I will again, over and over and over again, shows us that this covenant is a covenant of grace unconditional. God said, I will do these things. Now, a few things that highlighted in this, it's a covenant obviously between God and Abraham, but he draws it further to the Jewish nation. His descendants through his son Isaac, will, this covenant will be with. Notice the time frame. It is an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. There is a teaching that is out there and I don't know that it's as prevalent today as it used to be, but it's still very popular. It's called replacement theology. And that's heresy. 
it states that the Christians, you and I as Christians now, have replaced the Jewish nation as God's chosen people. That would mean that God is going back on his word, and he can't do that. The Jewish people, today and forever, are God's covenant people. We, as Christians, are grafted into that relationship. The relation, we didn't replace them. We've just been allowed to come alongside of that because of our relationship with the Jewish people through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Notice the place. He talks about it here. The area, the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan, again, notice the time, for an everlasting possession. Again, it's still theirs. And we talked about this, don't need to go into it again, but anybody who tries to divide up the land of Israel is breaking God's word, and I, I, I don't want to be any part of that. It's all theirs. Okay, verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall... And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or is bought with money shall be, surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Again, God now outlines something that Abraham and his descendants need to do as a sign to the covenant. Remember, this covenant that we've talked about, it is an unconditional covenant. This does not mean it's a make or break deal. This is the seal, the sign of the covenant. It's an outward sign of an inward reality as the descendants of Abraham. Same thing with us as Christians. When we are baptized, that is an outward sign of what has happened inside of us. It's proclaiming to the world that we are, that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we have been purchased by his blood. Abraham was the father of many nations. Again, we talked about it. Israel, or I'm sorry, Ishmael. He's going to become the father of the Arab nations. We're going to see here in a, in a little bit when we get there, Esau, because the Edomites and other nations that came from him. But God is setting aside this nation for his, as his chosen people, setting them apart. And this is a sign to set them apart. The cutting away of the flesh, it's a permanent act to cut it away and remove it. But it's a permanent reminder to them as well that they are God's people, separated from the world. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul gives us insight into this because a lot of people feel, again, at the time, and in Colossians and other places, Jews said that if people become Christians, if they're going to become one of us, they have to be circumcised. It's part of, it must be done. Well, Paul points that out, that that's not the condition of the, of the covenant. It's faith. And he points this out, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. It says, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Remember, this happened several years ago when God made the promise. God, Abraham, Abram believed the promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Well, here Paul is making that point. It was credited to him as righteousness years before circumcision was part of the covenant. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was uncircumcised. So the covenant given by God, again, an unconditional covenant, this being the sign of that covenant for God's chosen people. Verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old, and will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. While he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Here we see God changes Sarai's name to Sarah and promises that through her she will have a son. Mother of nations, mother of kings. Now, Sarah had her faults, as we've talked about, like Abram and like us, but she too trusted God. Hebrews 11, verse 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, what we've seen a lot is her lack of faith through this, but it's recorded for all time in Hebrews chapter 11 that she did believe. She did have faith. And again, that comforts me because here it tells me that God honors faith, even if it's weak faith, if it's faith in him. Now, the word or the name Sarah, interesting, means princess. Princess. Just a little note, guys. You want a wife who's a princess? Treat her like one. Treat her like a princess. You know, as we've gone through all of these stories, all of this time, all of the mistakes that have been made, all of the bad ideas that have gone around, not once, not once did Abram ever say, well, she did it. It's her fault. Remember Adam back in the garden? It's the woman you gave me. I don't see, a rec- I don't see that recorded anywhere. Like I said, Abram abdicated his responsibility. He didn't stand up and do what he should have done, but he didn't go off blaming her. He didn't do all of that. He didn't, he didn't throw all of that stuff on her. I see Abram as a man who treated his wife like a princess. We saw it recorded back again in chapter 12 when they went to Egypt. They're, they're well on in years already when they go to Egypt. And he says, tell them, tell them you're, you're my sister. Because they're going to see how beautiful you are. And they're going to want to take you. And then they're going to want to kill me. We're going to see that happen again, believe it or not. In another couple of chapters. When she's in her 90s. He's going to say, tell them you're my sister. Because you're so beautiful. Treat her like a princess. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's recorded here that when, God, when Abraham heard this, he laughed. Now, was he laughing out of doubt? Was he laughing out of excitement? You read it, and it kind of sounds like he's doubting God. It says, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? But God doesn't chastise him. God doesn't scold him for his lack of faith. And we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So, it's not, a, it's not a laugh of doubt. It's not, a, it's not questioning God at all. It's like, how are you going to do that? That's just awesome. That's great. He's laughing. He's so excited. But in his excitement, he remembers his son Ishmael. And you, again, Ishmael now is 13 years old. He's, he loves his son. And he's like, okay, but if, so if this one's going to be the son of promise, this is the one you're talking about. What about Ishmael? What about Ishmael? 
God has a divine plan, and Abraham and Sarah's mess with this whole Hagar and Ishmael thing isn't going to change that. But God does promise, I have heard you, Abraham, and I will bless him, and he will become a nation. However, however, the promise, the seed is going to come through Isaac, your son. Again, we look at this and we think, man, God, there could have been a whole bunch of different ways you could have handled this, but God's way is perfect. God's way is perfect. Well, finishing up the chapter here, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all his servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day that God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised in Ishmael, his son. All of the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So we see here, God commands Abraham to do this thing. And we see a couple of things real quickly about obedience that are very important. First of all, it's immediate. It says that it was the same day, the same day he got the, the command to do it, he went out and did it. Understand that delayed obedience is disobedience. If God tells you to do something, you need to do it when he tells you to do it. If God lays it on your heart, you pick up the phone and call someone and you say, yeah, some other time. That's disobedience. Anytime we delay obedience to what God is calling us to do, it's disobedience. Notice also it was complete. Abraham, Ishmael, and all the men of his household, and there were hundreds, complete, total obedience. Understand, partial obedience is disobedience. We are to do what God tells us to do, all of it, when he tells us to do it. And I got to imagine that this wasn't the most popular news in camp. <laughs> but it says a lot about how the people of, that were amongst Abraham respected him, loved him. You don't get that kind of thing without pouring into people. I gotta, it, it, Abraham was a very popular guy he had to be in order to convince all of these guys without a mutiny that this is what's going to happen. <laughs> but notice one other thing, too, with this. This act required total faith, complete and total faith. How? Abraham just circumcised every male in camp. They're going to be incapacitated for a few days, totally leaving themselves wide open to attack from any enemy. But Abraham said, you know what? God promised me that he's my shield. He's my protection. We talked about that last week. I need to be obedient. So he did. Well, we're going to get started real quickly into chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the, at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass, by your, pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham, hurry, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which, was, which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate it. Abraham's kicking back one day, heat of the day, tent in the shade, and all of a sudden, here's three people standing in front of him, three men. And we know these three men to be, again, another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and two angels. How do we know that? Well, we're going to get into more details of that this week and when we get together again talking through that. But we know that to be true, these three men, Jesus and two angels. And hospitality was a huge thing in that day. If people showed up like this, you were supposed to offer them refreshment. 
but something he knew about these guys were extra special. We know that, first of all, because it says that he bowed himself to the earth. Again, first time this word is used in, in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word for worship. He didn't just run up to them and pay normal homage. He worshipped them. We see here that the angels and Jesus, they were sitting down and he brought them the food and they ate it. Manifesting themselves as human beings, doing what, what men do. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. You never know. You never know. A couple of things here, though, quickly. Abraham is 99 years old. 99 years old. It's the heat of the day. And it can get hot there. And he's sitting in the shade, and here are these guys, and it tells us he ran out. He hurried. I, I highlighted this. He ran, he bowed, he hurried, he ran, and he hurried. All in these verses. He's going all over the place. He's running. Again, 99 years old, it's hot, and he's going, is that how you approach your time with the Lord? That excited, that hurried. I can just imagine. I mean, I just, I, again, I get this picture in my, in my head. He's just like overjoyed. Here, hey guys, sit down. And he's running all over the place, wanting to serve the Lord. Notice too, he says, go to Sarah. He said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, fine flour knead it, and make bread cakes. He went, ran and got the best, best calf that he could. He, did, he didn't give them leftovers. He gave them the best he had. And I also see, again, I might be stretching here, but I see a little bit of humility in it. He said in here, he said, verse 5, and I will bring a piece of bread. He brought him a pretty immaculate spread of food. He didn't just bring him a piece of bread. Here, sit down. He, he, he promised him one thing, brought him a whole lot more, and it doesn't record him saying, hey, you see what I brought? <laughs> see all this extra stuff I brought? He was humble. Now, I... I love reading commentaries because every time I get something that I totally missed. And I have to admit, I totally missed this next point, but I love it. Abraham incorporated others in the service of the Lord. He got his wife involved. He got the servants involved. He got, he got a bunch of people involved to go and serve the Lord. And there's, an, there's, there's such a tremendous blessing in that. When we serve the Lord together. First of all, this is something that I struggled with a very long time. Delegation was not high on my good to-do list. I'd tell somebody to do it, and then I'd beat them there to do it. But the Lord has so shown me that so much more work gets done, and it gets done so much better when I have other people do it. Sharing in that. Everybody gets a part of the blessing. It gets done better. God's more glorified. D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, I would rather put 10 men to work than do the work of 10 men. Amen. All right, verse 9. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you this time next year, and behold, your Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have the pleasure, my Lord, being old also? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abram, Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Here again we see God revealing, repeating his promises, but here he's giving a timetable within the next year. And Sarah heard it, and she laughed to herself quietly. Unlike Abraham's laugh, hers was full of doubt, though. She was, she was questioning God. And when we question God in any of the promises that we get from him, really, bottom line, we do what Sarah did. We question his integrity, first of all. 
If he said he's going to do it and we question whether he's not, we, we question whether he's really good enough to do what he said he was going to do. Or we question his ability. Really, it's just a matter of the heart. And God gets right to that question. He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's one of those questions that answers itself. We contrast that as we're getting ready here for the Christmas celebration and we think of all of that, that we contrast that with Mary who was told by the angel Gabriel, you're going to have a child. And she said, how? I've never known a man. Not doubting, but how's that going to happen? I, I don't know. Full of, full of faith, trusting, believing, and going forward with it. How can this be? Well, as we said, with God, all things are possible. Sarah made matters worse by lying about it. She lied out of fear, it tells us. She was afraid. I can imagine. She laughs to herself. She's in the tent. Nobody can hear her or see her. And God says, why is she laughing? You know, I can imagine that would probably freak you out a little bit. But she made it worse by lying. And just real quickly as we close, it does no good to lie to God. He knows already anyway. Bottom line is, and this is, I think, something that we all need to understand, it's his heart to forgive us. It's not his heart to come down on us and beat us up. And I think a lot of us, if you've come from a, a very religious background, a very legalistic background, that can be something that you still battle with. That God is just waiting up there with lightning bolts and sledgehammers to, to just beat you up over things. He doesn't. His desire is for you to just confess your sin, to repent of it, turn away from it, and turn back to him. That's all he wants. And we just make matters worse when we lie about it, try to cover it up, try to, protect, try to convince him it's not as bad as he thinks it is. It's his desire to just get that relationship back to the way it should be. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for, again, all of the wonderful lessons that you teach us through the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. Lord, we just ask that as we go from here, that we, we do spend some time just thinking about it, reflecting on it, maybe rereading it and having you speak to us personally, Lord, because it is your desire that we grow closer to you through your word. These aren't just stories to tell our kids at bedtime. These are real events that have real application in our lives. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for preserving your word for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you this weekend.